Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has almost six years of law enforcement analysis experience. She's currently the senior crime analyst for South Bend Police Department in Indiana. She's also the treasurer of the Midwest Gang Investigators Association. She's here to talk about their newly formed real-time crime center. Please welcome Brian Fenton. Brian, how are we doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Jason. Excellent. I really appreciate your time today. And South Bend, I learned something from our prep call yesterday. I'm a little embarrassed. I am a longtime Notre Dame football fan, and I did not realize that Notre Dame was not technically in South Bend and that they have their own municipality. Yep. They have a post office, which makes them their own little city. Why? See, NBC Sports has lied to me for decades because it says, <laughs> like, live from South Bend, which I guess that's where the stadium is. Is the stadium uh, yeah. separate from the from the university, I take it? They're all, like, kind of in the same thing. I think just South Bend, everyone just knows it as mm-hmm. Notre Dame, but technically, like, it's considered Notre Dame in Indiana, like Notre Dame's address. I gotcha. Hmm. Mm-hmm. See? Yeah. So I, I I think to really get myself corrected, you're just going to have to help me out with football tickets this fall. Oh, and have, and I don't know me. if I have any connection for you there. Well, we might have to ask around. All right. <laughs> so how do you, did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? I kind of always wanted to do something in law enforcement growing up. In high school, I took some classes that were geared towards law enforcement. And then when I went to college, I originally majored in criminal justice. But after like my first semester, I didn't have a math class and I'm kind of a nerd and I missed taking math. So I picked up the math major and I also did that double major in like sociology. And so I did, you know, four years of mathematics major. And so I was like, I don't want to like not do anything with that. Like it was very difficult. So I was looking for something that was law enforcement mixed with like numbers and stats and stuff and be more analytical. And then I found this profession. And so my senior year, like my second semester, I started taking classes that would help me gear towards this profession. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I graduated from college, I was offered the position at South Bend, Indiana, the police department, and I ended up taking it. And I've been here ever since. Nice. So what made you switch majors entirely? Because as you mentioned, you went from being a criminal justice major and then you ended up picking it up as a minor. Yes. So everyone was telling me, like, don't just do criminal justice because you're kind of like pigeonholing yourself because it's like one avenue you can go if you do more broad like sociology mixed with math then you have like some law enforcement stuff included in that so I was able to broaden my education as well as if I didn't go into this field I would be able to go under different avenues if I chose to opposed to just doing criminal justice yeah I agree I think if I had to do it over again I would have picked criminal justice as a minor and I would have majored either in business, mathematics, even computer science. It, it, I think it is fascinating, this career, because it almost seems like you 
folks coming from a different discipline come in with an advantage as opposed to just having a criminal justice bachelor's degree. It's very few and far between that you would have a discipline or a profession that would that would be the case. But for some reason, I, I think what you would learn in a minor in criminal justice isn't that far from what you learn as it being your major. And but having the mathematics and sociology dual major, I mean, there's a lot that you can bring to the table with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the criminal justice, like, I think a lot of it you can learn in, like, real-life examples or on the job training or just, like, your classic person who loves their true crime podcast or TV shows. You Mm -hmm. can pick up on a lot of, like, the court stuff or just terminology and how kind of maybe structured of a police department or law enforcement, like, environment is. So I think when you just do criminal justice, you're only getting the criminal justice side opposed to getting a whole much broader spectrum of education and experiences and knowledge, like I think computer and technology and the mathematics and the analytical part is a huge component into the crime analysis field. Like you need so many different aspects other than law enforcement in order to actually be productive in this field. Yeah. Oh, man, sociology, but oh, sociology almost killed me because that was a whole heck of a lot of reading. <laughs> like that. I would have been good with the mathematics part, but the sociology major might have killed me. So a lot of reading and a lot of big papers. Yeah. Ah, interesting. OK, so then you arrive in South Bend and what is your experience? Because you're hired straight out of college. Uh, and you had, well, you had done a couple internships, right? Leading up to yes. this. Yes. I did one internship in college or I did both internships in college. And mm-hmm. one was, I was like on the defense side of a murder trial. So in terms of what a lawyer goes through, like, which that was a lot of paperwork and reading the evidence, we got to go to the crime scene and do all that stuff. And it's such a long proceeding. So I got to learn kind of the court side of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I realized I did not want to be a lawyer. There's just like way too much paperwork <laughs> and you had to know big words and all the law. And I was like, too much, too much. And then uh, I did where I grew up. I went to the local police department, which was a bit different than South Bend. The crime rate's a bit different, but I at least got to do ride alongs and I got to see different components of the police department. And that was kind of cool. And I always like thought I might be an officer, but I have like really bad vision And so I didn't think I could do well at like night shift or afternoons and usually start there. So I'm like, maybe an officer is not really my forte. So like all those experiences kind of brought me to where I'm at now. Yeah, that's interesting. How did you secure those internships? A professor in my sociology major, she actually asked if I would be interested in the actual like the lawyer defense attorney one so I did that with a group of individuals and I went to a small school so there wasn't like too many kids that went to my university so there's only you knew the same kids in all of your classes for your major because they didn't really change Mm -hmm. Uh, so like a small group of us did that internship and then for the one in my hometown I applied for the internship and I do the whole interview process and at the time I actually worked for the city in a different aspect I did like a summer job through the city so I think that kind of helped because I had a lot of connections already with the city just not in the law enforcement side of things oh so that's is that Fordyce murder trial is that that was yes that was the one in Iowa 
Yeah, and you got to see it from beginning to end? Not completely, unfortunately. When it finally actually went to trial or when they were going to decide on a plea or whatever, like we went home for the summer and then I was like graduating. So I didn't get to like see the actual like courtroom proceedings like I wish I wanted to, but I did all the stuff leading up to it. Yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done even before you get into court, obviously. So, yes. so what was the, I? I guess what was the outcome of the trial? He took a plea deal, so he took like a a lesser sentence for the murder because okay. they all knew he did it. It was just if there was self defense or not, and okay. the defense didn't think they had enough argument to go self defense in court. So then they ended up taking the plea that the prosecutors came with. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes if folks are interested in that case to follow up on it. I think internships are great. I do talk to analysts or folks that want to be analysts from time to time, and it does seem like it is difficult to secure internships. And so I like to ask that question is just like, how did you secure this this internship? Because I think a lot of people do have difficulty, but I think they're so important, even if in your case, like you said, you took the internship and you realized, well, that's what I don't want to do. I at least know that. And it just helps you with your journey to find out what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. All right. So then you get to South Bend. What are some things that you're asked to do as you start your career as a crime analyst? Yeah. So when I came to South Bend, I was the first civilian crime analyst that the department has ever had. And so they didn't quite know what to do with me. So it was definitely a learning curve, I'd say, for the first six months. I'm kind of surprised I didn't leave the department because (laughs) (laughs) there was discrepancies on who was going to train me. The person who said they were going to train me was pretty busy, so they really had found time to do it. So, And when I first got here, I didn't even have a computer. It took a week to get my computer. I used my sergeant's in-car laptop for the first week. And then with the whole discrepancy of training, it took, I think it was like a month and a half to two months where I specifically just read police reports for eight hours a day. So again, I'm surprised I have stuck it out here, but things eventually changed. They finally were like, okay, we need to get this girl trained, you know, because I knew the, in terms of the crime analyst field, I knew at least some of the stuff that you need, like the tools and stuff, but in terms of how to apply it in a real life crime setting was a bit different. You know, I didn't know what the department wanted or needed and what the administration would have wanted. So the first six months was definitely like figuring all that out. And then I finally got into the groove of things, I'd say after the beginning of the first of the year, because I started in June. Uh, in 2017 at the South Bend Police Department. And so beginning of 2018, I think I really was coming into my own. And so I took over what they originally wanted me to do, but then I also was able to elevate that and do more into it. So they were doing like a crime report each week. And so it highlights all the major like gun violence incidents, as well as you do some mapping, some crime hotspot mapping. So I took over all of that and I definitely enhanced it. So we started doing like hotspots more instead of just mapping all the incidents itself. We actually did hotspot mapping. We identified each side of town, like where the hot spot of the town is. And then with that, we did like time and day as well as supplying like intel on those. So like maybe what houses or addresses might be causing issues 
whether it's drug or gang or gun violence related. And then taking the gun violence slides that they would do, I definitely brought more to them in terms of intelligence and information. So supplying maybe what gang are they in? Do they have nicknames? Their past events that might be caused. South Bend also is fortunate to have their own ballistics lab in-house. And so our ballistics spit out pretty quickly. And so just encompassing that information as well. So like what cases are tied to each other just based off ballistic evidence. So that meeting became way more beneficial in terms of how do we go into the upcoming week to prevent more future gun violence. So I say that was a big component of when I first started and then revamped it. And so we still even use this meeting and that whole ideology today. It's changed a little bit over the years because of what we've seen at other agencies and vice versa. So it's evolved a little bit, but it's been consistently gun violence incidents and hotspot analysis. We look at notable events that are happening in the city. So we're on social media to see if there's, you know, any big protest or are there gang related incidents or are there these big parties that people are talking about that we might have problems at. So we all encompass that into one meeting. And what's really cool is South Bend, we have our own, right? But we've reached out to all of our neighboring jurisdictions. And so like Mishawaka Police Department, St. Joe County Police Department, we have other agencies nearby as well. We have Michigan State Police, we have Indiana State Police, we have probation and parole, we have we have ATF, we have DEA, even FBI that come to our meeting every week and they talk about what they have to share. So it's like a very big networking and intel sharing meeting that is mainly for Northern Indiana and Southwest Michigan. And it's very beneficial for our agency and outside agencies to share info and solve cases. That is fascinating. I think that's not done too often. You certainly have quite a guest list on that weekly meeting. Did you say it was weekly? Yes, it's every Thursday morning. In terms of your progression, and coming in and you start developing either maps or reports or other analytical products and it might not be anything that you're telling the audience that is new but where i feel that it's so beneficial is these products once the audience and meetings are used to seeing this data each and every time it helps people communicate what the issues are and what to do and because i i feel that sometimes like well folks officers and other folks in the police department may know what the problems and issues are but they're not either all seeing it the same way or they're not all using the same data or the same reference point so it becomes difficult to work together when you don't have these products that everybody's using correct definitely that that's Funny because when I, before I got here, we keep track of our shooting numbers. It's very important for the city in terms of gun violence. And our record system doesn't do the greatest in terms of like distinguishing shootings. So we keep our internal number. And at one point, there was, I think, three or four different people keeping that number. And there was always a discrepancy like, I have this number, I have this (laughs) number, no, it's this number. And so, like, who knows who's right? You know, there's Mm -hmm. so much goes on. So, that's something else that I was able to assist at the South Bend Police Department as we made like a gun violence spreadsheet that keeps track of 
all of our gun violence incidents that highlights our shooting. So there's one centralized location opposed to each person keeping their own. Yeah. And you mentioned how the meeting has changed over the over the years. And I really do think that's important. I think every meeting that I've ever been part of eventually went stale. It it was good in the beginning. There was a lot of new, interesting ideas that were shared. And then it just seems like those ideas and that discussion eventually dry out. And I do think tweaks to the process from time to time are very good. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think those tweaks were definitely needed for our meeting that we have finally evolved to now. You get your own computer, you get the data, and you develop this meeting. Do you start out as a senior crime analyst or do you develop, do you eventually get promoted to a senior crime analyst? Well, that's kind of how the whole progression of the analysts have happened here at the PD. So I started just like a regular crime analyst because I was the Mm -hmm. only one. Mm -hmm. And then based on what I was able to produce and what we were able to assist with investigators and our specialized unit, they saw a need for another one. So then we got another analyst. And then there was two is me and another person. And then my sergeant who was over me ended up retiring and he actually came back as a civilian role, which is similar to like an analyst role. And so then we had about three individuals with the crime analyst unit And then with the whole real-time crime center startup, we added an additional like two to three. So therefore, someone had to be over all of these analysts. And I was chosen as that individual since I was here like the longest and understood the field. We didn't really have enough manpower to do, you know, a sworn officer to be over all the crime analysts. Plus, Mm -hmm. a lot of them don't understand completely what we do. Mm -hmm. So to have someone who someone could go to to ask questions on how would I do this report if I want to do a crime intelligence bulletin like what would this look like what needs to be here like all the technical stuff like the GIS mapping or using Excel like so sometimes sworn officers don't necessarily know how to do all those applications. Yeah we would always have the point at Cincinnati Police Department you they would rotate through captains right when i was there i was stationed at basically beside it which was mostly civilian and we would get a new captain rotate through maybe once a year maybe twice a year and it was like okay now we got to train the captain like we were training (laughs) training the captain the captain wasn't training us type thing so i can and I, i i don't think that is unique to cincinnati that probably happens everywhere where you have a sworn supervisor over top of civilians yeah we do have a a sworn over the crime analyst unit but they directly report to me and then i directly report to them but mm-hmm. his name is lieutenant kyle dombrowski and he's great he's definitely made me able to flourish to the analyst i am today and he's been also a big component not only me but him and the development of all the crime analysts here at south bend and being able to expand it and what we've been able to do, he's been a huge part of. So we're lucky that we have a lieutenant who knows what we do and our worth is important to him. So it's always nice to have backing by your boss. Yeah. So, but now he can never get promoted to captain and leave, right? You just want to keep. Yeah. No, there. he's not you allowed want... to. <laughs> you <want laughs> you to can't leave on. until I leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just stay right there. And that's, uh, you know, no. all right. Good. Well, this brings us to your analyst badge stories. And for those that may be new to the show, the 
analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. And you have two. And the first one is 2021, where you're working on a homicide. Yes. So here at South Bend, we, we kind of, us analysts get to put our hands on a lot of different aspects of law enforcement. We do the data side of things and the hotspot analysis and all that stuff. But we also do a lot of intelligence work on gang and gun violence in our city. And with that, we are up on social media a lot, monitoring that stuff. So we had a homicide go out in October of 2021. And it was a female who was at our house and three individuals ended up going inside the house trying to rob her and struggle ensued because she didn't obviously want to get robbed. And so she was fatally shot. So the detectives came to us analysts and supplied photos because the individual had security cameras at their house. And so we saw the pictures, they had their hoods up and whatnot. And you couldn't really make out faces because you never see the face in the front, you know, it's always like side views or back views. So we saw the clothing and because we're on social media a lot, we recognize the clothing, what group was actually usually wearing that clothing. And so we're like, we know it's these individuals, but how do we identify out of that big group of people, the three specific people who did this shooting? So we had a lot of intelligence on this group of people. They were causing a lot of issues in our city. And so we had different surveillance platforms just out there looking and monitoring these individuals. And so we went back to look at the surveillance platforms the South Bend Police Department was utilizing, and we ended up seeing the specific three individuals leave a house in the exact same clothing where they ended up driving to the homicide scene. You see them come back to the house, and then they end up going somewhere else all night. But I was able to watch the video back and observe when they all entered the house. And based on who entered the house, I had at least like about I think it was six or seven individuals that would have been the three individuals that left the house. So based on all that, I was able to use social media photos as well as what intel we had, as well as different surveillance platforms we use. And I was able to compile all the information and single-handedly be able to identify the three shooters that ended up doing the homicide. Yeah. Now, were they all wearing the same thing? No, they had, there's like this specific red, white, and blue hoodie that this group mm -hmm. was always sharing and was utilizing it. And then there was a specific black, like Nike hoodie that we knew an individual with that group was arrested in like a week prior with a firearm. Mm -hmm. So just like just seeing that those clothing and they're both in the same group, we're like, it's got to be that specific gang. Once you identify them, get them arrested. How does the case turn out? Pretty good. So one of them actually just went to trial on it. His name was Travis Logan. He went to trial on it and he was actually found guilty. I don't think the sentencing has came back yet, but he was found guilty for the homicide. It's still surprising to me that you have folks that are doing activities such as homicides and they're still posting pictures on social media. Yes, it's you. It's honestly kind of shocking, like how someone could go like shoot someone or kill someone. And then you go on their social media account, they're posting on their Snapchat or posting stories. And sometimes even with like the clothing they were in, or they might have even had like the gun they used in the video. I mean, they're not the sometimes the brightest.
Yeah, but I mean, it just seems like at this point in time, I mean, I talked to analysts time and time again that are using this information as as evidence, and it seems like they're pretty slow to realize that that's going to get them in trouble. But hey, I guess in, in another way of looking at it, it's it's good for our profession that they're a little slow on on this trend. It's great that they like to flash everything on social media it definitely helps yeah so then let's get to the other analyst badge story then and this deals with a former ice officer being shot at yeah so an excise police officer was driving through south bend and whether this individual thought his vehicle wasn't marked so he didn't know specifically it was a police car but The police officer was following this individual and was actually going to pull them over for a traffic stop. And right before the officer put on his lights, the guy ended up in front take off. And so a small pursuit ensued where the individual ended up getting out of the car, fired shots at the officer, officer returned fire, and then the the guy got back into his vehicle and drove away. No Mm -hmm. one was struck, so thank God for that. But an excise police officer was shot at. So since it happened within South Bend, Indiana State Police sent over at least some of the info they had on the individual, whether they had him going into like a convenience store prior to. So they had video surveillance of that. You can't make out like any features. The video wasn't too good, but you could at least see the clothing that the guy was wearing. And then we had a description of the vehicle and knew where the incident happened. So we got that info when we came in in the morning. And we used our license plate reader technology we have in South Bend, and we identified the vehicle because we actually had a camera nearby the incident that picked up the exact vehicle when the incident occurred. So we identified the vehicle, obviously ran the vehicle to find the registered owner, and then looked him up in our actual record system. And then we found a name, and that name was very well known to South Bend Police Department. We've dealt with him a lot. And because of that, we have him on social media and stuff. So then eventually I go to social media, and I go on a Snapchat, and I find the same exact clothing. So it's like a jumpsuit. (laughs) And I find the exact color jumpsuit in his Snap story. And so I'm like, well, this is probably him. So we sent it over to the, the Indiana State Police saying, we think this is your individual. Here's what we have. The vehicle's connected to this. This is this guy's dating his mom. He last drove this vehicle like two weeks ago and was involved in a car accident. And then here's a snap story with his photo on. Then the Indiana State Police comes back with a, they're like, we're getting tips on it could be this guy with the nickname Pablo. And we're like, well, that's his nickname. And we supplied all this intel we had on him. And they ended up being able to do a search warrant at the individual's residence. He wasn't arrested immediately, but I would say within a couple of days, he eventually got picked up for this incident. So that was probably one of the quickest turnarounds we had on a case, I'd say. Yeah, no, there's a lot of information that you were able to supply to the state police. That's impressive. In terms of the actual shooting then, was the officer in an unmarked car? Yes. So it wasn't like a okay. marked vehicle with like, you know, the he- the lights on top. So but, but- he he's a known problem in our city. So it's mm-hmm. not, he might have thought he was getting followed by like the opposition. And so therefore he was nervous because maybe he thought they were going to do something to him because the car was following him. Mm-hmm. So we don't think he just shot at the guy 
because he knew he was an officer. We think he shot at them thinking that he was going to do it first before they did to him, probably. Yeah, that's some really bad luck. (laughs) Yes. Right? Like, not that I get into, like, I've ever had the thought of, like, oh, I'm going to shoot the guy that's following me. (laughs) But if you're going to do that, the fact that it's an undercover officer that you're shooting at, it just seems (laughs) like a little, right? It seems (laughs) seems like that is some bad luck. But fortunately for the officer, he was not struck. He could have certainly worked out a lot worse definitely and there's so much information out there that an analyst can bring to an investigation and certainly we've had several guests on on this show now where they're talking about just the best practices and and we're what to do what not to do from your point of view, do you have any advice on open source or social media research that you do? So definitely training is a huge component. Like anyone can social media stalk someone, but to really know the ins and outs of like several social media platforms, definitely going to other trainings and whatnot is huge. Just using all your resources is important. Like our main social media platforms that people use in South Bend is Facebook and Snapchat. So those are our two main ones. They use other ones, but those are the two ones they usually communicate with people and like post and are active on it. And so just knowing how those exactly get used and how you can like get the most information out of them is important. So like Facebook has this nice new thing that you can search profiles. Not every profile depends on their security settings, but You can click the search button and you can search their whole profile for specific keywords. So if you're trying to identify the Facebook account or whatever, you can search by their birthday. Did anyone say happy birthday? And a lot of times it would be like happy 15th birthday. And you're like, great, I got your whole DOB just from that specific (laughs) post. And then therefore you can maybe get a name or whatnot. You can look up mom, dad, maybe like baby mama, brother, sister, and you can get like family members. You can get girlfriends, you can get their kids. So it's a huge resource because a lot of that time, sometimes their information is not like public. So you can do the whole TLO, the clear, but some of them don't have anything registered to them or they have no like bank accounts to them. Like it's all under their girlfriends, their moms. So like to track down these people, like a lot of times the social media is like their only database for that individual. Hi, my name is Nick Lutens. I'm a crime analyst, and I'm here to tell you that nobody deserves to be a victim, but lock your doors and put your stuff where people can't see it. Thank you. You didn't do the dishes? Well, no, I was busy doing other chores, but my completed chores is up five in the last seven days. Yeah, but you're still down 13 over the last 28 days. Well, I see your shopping purchases is up 20% this month. My spending is still down year to date. In fact, my black shoe purchases are half of what they were this time last year. Well, thank goodness last year wasn't a normal year. Plus, I bought you new underwear, so your clothes purchases is up 40% this month compared to last month. Oh, wait, there were no clothes purchases the previous month, Miss Perfect. I didn't know you had the ability to divide by zero. You should be happy. Your temperature-led policing program has worked great in this house. I have not touched your precious thermostat in the last six months. Millions of homes in the U.S. are impacted by people wanting to be comfortable in their homes. 
Temperature-led fleecing. Control the temperature, control the cost. Let's get into the development of the Real-Time Crime Center. So this just came online in December of this past year. I really want to get into your role as an analyst helping to develop this center. Absolutely. So we had a bunch of technology. So South Bend, we are fortunate enough to have a lot of different technology, whether it's ShotSpot or license plate readers, you know, clear for the public records, a lot of different stuff here. But we had to get new technology. And so it's, I was like to train the trainer. So I had to learn all the new technology and then therefore train the other analysts to like this, how we will utilize it. This is what you need to do. So I had to learn all of the different technology, become an expert on it before training all the new analysts with it. And so we had a couple new technologies and one of them we went with was Fusis. And that's a big component of our real-time crime center. It encompasses our CAD system, our flock, which is our license plate reader, our shot spotter, as well as all of our cameras. So we're trying to expand how many cameras we've integrated with our Fusis, but currently we have like 105 city cameras in addition to Notre Dame's cameras that we can access live. So if an incident were to go out real time near one of these cameras, we can pull up that feed and supply, supply real time information to the officers. So developing that. And then in addition to that, we had to hire a couple new analysts. So I was went through resumes. I was on the hiring board. And then training was a huge component. And like I said, South Bend has a lot of technology, which can kind of sometimes be overwhelming for <laughs> new individuals. So it took maybe about three to four weeks just to get training in all the different software and databases we use to really get them comfortable before really utilizing the real-time crime center to its full capability. All right. So with the FUSIS, it sounds like you have it gives you access to multiple input sources and then allows you one one communication path out to the officer. Is that the main purpose of the software? Yes, it definitely utilizes it. We kind of we have so much so many different stuff. You don't want to keep having to open new databases or log in, have so many logins. So it's trying to get one stop shop basically with Fusis. And so far it's been pretty good with that. Okay. And then did you, I mean, obviously you have your typical computer. Was there any hardware that was special to the center? So we have a nice, great big video wall, which mm -hmm. everyone is amazed with when they walk into the room. <laughs> it's like the room to see right now. So there's this big video wall. So not only we had a, the room where the real-time crime center at, at the South Bend Police Department used to be a storage room. And then before that, it was like the old school, like typewriter typing room. <laughs> so it's been revamped a couple of times. They had to like take down a wall and then like we got new carpet. We had to get all new desk, all new monitors and computers in there, pads and stuff, you know, to do the social media stuff. And then in addition, we had a great big video wall. So it's like the screens, I don't know how with how wide they are, but it's like a two by four. So there's like eight total screens that make one big screen and then we can throw up whatever. So it's like a command post. Like if something's happening, the analyst can be in there with any other commander or administration member or command staff member and see, pull up video camera footage if we need to. You can see all of our shot spotter stuff. It's just like, you can see it all on the big screen opposed to like cuddling around one 
computer station to look at something. In terms of just the planning and setup and development, what did you learn or what was the most difficult? I would say some of the difficulty was like the communication. So this was a project, like the mayor was like, we're doing this at the beginning of 2022. And so several of the chiefs from the police department, as well as some of the IT individuals from the city IT got together and they were the main people on this. And so the trickle down method, I would say in terms of like the progression and how things are gonna run. And I think there's a little bit of miscommunication. I think I would have liked to be more involved in some of it opposed to like, okay, here it is. What are your thoughts? Or here it is. Do you like it? I'm like, well, what if I don't? I feel like it's a little too late to say that. Oh, yeah. Stuff like that. So I think just a communication issue with IT and our command staff and the people who are actually going to be in the center. I think that could have been a little bit better. What is the old saying? If you're going to have me cook dinner, at least let me pick the groceries kind of thing, right? Yes. So... All right. And then how did you enjoy hiring? It's definitely an interesting thing. I've been on, I think, like four or five hiring boards since being at South Bend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been a nervous person for interviews. I was. I, I always think, you know yourself the best, right? No one can say anything other than what you know. So some of them, you can really tell some people are just so nervous and you just wish you could be like, relax, like just having a conversation. You don't have to freak out. It's okay. Like we were all in your situation at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely a wide variety of interviews you see, but it's definitely nice to be included on those. And all the other analysts are usually included on the hiring boards just because we work as a close team and we definitely work as I would say, like a family environment where we help each other out. It's not like, someone's gunning for someone's position or they want to look better than the other ones. We all work as a collective team. And so everyone having input on that member is very important because we're all going to be working together. And if someone doesn't like someone, we don't want tension, you know, we don't want to build the relationships we already currently have there. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I always joke around as, uh, and say, thank goodness they don't record your interviews. <laughs> so that would be so embarrassing to watch your first couple interviews when you're in your early mid twenties trying to get a job oh, yeah. at a police department, right? And it's yeah, certainly so good. I definitely couldn't. I don't like watching myself over. I I was an athlete in high school and college, and so watching film and stuff, I'm just like, oh, I was such an idiot. Like, why did I do that? I just like hate watching it over it's sometimes difficult but it's sometimes funny after someone gets hired you you go back and you're like so what do you think of the interview board i always say was anyone intimidating looking or what do you think of your first impressions on us and that's sometimes kind of funny because their reactions or their statements are like completely different than what we think would have been the case yeah it is interesting what their different perspectives are because even with even with my kids i'm watching a movie and they'll pick out something on the screen that is just hilarious that i never would have thought that they would have even remembered or picked up on or anything like that so i can (laughs) it is it is interesting getting different people's perspectives and seeing what they got out of the same event you went through four of these do you have any suggestions on how you would improve the hiring process? Yeah, we've actually done that the last couple of times. So the first one I sat in, I was just, you know, a person who was just sitting in, asking questions, giving my opinion, wasn't really involved in the process of setting it all up. But the 
other couple I, I was a big component to. So we used to just ask a bunch of questions and get a feel for the individual. And I've done a couple other interviews where you had to do like some type of an assignment or something. Mm-hmm. So I really liked that component because you people can say something and a question and they can elaborate. And some people might be really good talkers, but in order to sit down and do the work, like that's important as well. So this most recent time we developed an assignment that people would have to complete if they were interested in, if we were going to extend an interview to them. So before their interview, they would have to complete the various tasks on this assignment. Okay. So I think that's a good a component to hiring analysts is having some type of like a check-in, whether it's checking in on skills or checking in on their knowledge or something like that before you hire them or before an interview. Yeah. I feel that a lot of interviews and a lot of training for analysts don't mimic their day-to-day activity. And if you think about the idea of going in front of a panel and having that interview, that might be the last time you're ever in front of a panel as an analyst, right? Yeah. I mean, you can you can certainly argue, well, they're going to have to do presentations or they're going to have to do, you know, you're always going to have to sell yourself in one way or another. But I do feel that a lot of interviews, if they don't have any kind of practical task, that you're just relying on how this person presents themselves, which, as you mentioned, some people are really good at it, and then you get somebody that's not as good as fit, and you might get somebody that's not really good at it, but they have the skills that would have been perfect for what you're looking for. Exactly, yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, because I mean, I think that, as I said, with training too, like I, I feel that And we'll get into training, I guess, a a little bit. But I do feel that with training, it's a lot of just sitting there, absorbing a bunch of information, and then going home. And there's not really a lot of X's and O's behind the training. It's just all about just awareness. And it's really surprising that that hasn't really changed in 20 years. Yes, I agree. I feel like a lot of times you go to trainings and it's a lecture and half the people don't even really want to listen to a lecture, right? You want the hands-on training, like, let's bring our laptops here. Show us, like, what you would do if this case, like a like a practical thing, like, I get this case and then how do you go from this case to developing info? Like, where do you look? What do you find? How do you produce that stuff? So is the real-time crime center, I, I take it, is it shift work? Are you 24-7? We started off just like day shifts, so regular day mm-hmm. shift hours. So we're like 8 to 4 in the real-time mm-hmm. crime center, only Monday through Friday because we started off with 2 in the real-time crime center. But it's just it started off and then come late summer where the administration with the mayor's office and our command staff are going to reevaluate and see if maybe more analysts would be beneficial to maybe almost do like a 24-7, maybe not complete coverage every day, but maybe about like 20 hours or something. So we're hoping to expand here in the next couple months. Yeah, we had a real-time crime center developed when I was at Cincinnati Police Department and the on the street, they called them the part-time crime center. <laughs> I guess they were only open. Yeah. They were only open Monday through Friday, like eight to five or whatever it was. I was like, yeah, because that's where all our crime is happening during that time, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the makeup in terms of who's all in the center? Obviously, you have analysts, 
And yes. is it just folks from South Bend PD or do you have other jurisdictions in there as well? It's just South Bend. So we have two South Bend analysts that are in there and then I float between what I currently do and also go to the real time crime center. But mm-hmm. uh, we have like a group email that we all use. So not only do they do real time stuff in terms of watching cameras, helping with calls, stuff like that. We also have a like a Intel email where people can ask for requests, whether it's find social media pages, identify social media pages, need like a person workup. We do have our own facial recognition software, so maybe a request to do that. So we all kind of work on collectively on all the requests that come in as well. So they kind of like a dual role with Intel work in addition to real-time crime analyst work. And then as you, as I mentioned, you just opened. You're only a couple months old. What have you learned from the first couple months being open? I definitely need more cameras to assist for <laughs> sure. That would be huge. We're def- that's a work in progress. We just went live with our camera registry, and we're hoping to get more businesses on board to be able to tap into their actual surveillance system to help with ongoing issues. But it's definitely, we've already had like a win for the real-time crime center, identifying an individual who tossed a firearm. So definitely learning process and how we like want it to be all set up and ran. So it was a lot of conversations before it started in terms of like what their day-to-day will look like. Cause right now we don't have a lot of cameras to really assist too much with real-time crime, but we had to develop all this other stuff because we don't want someone just sitting bored out of their mind in a room waiting for something to happen. So a lot of talks to talk about what the day-to-day would look like and a lot of stuff like that. But I think definitely learning process is to have open communication with the analysts. So like we're not completely in there all the time. So, and it's new, right? So they're the ones who's in it. So definitely getting feedback from the analysts who are working there, like what's working, what's not, what would you like to see? What do you not want to see? to really evolve it and make it as best and productive as possible. Yeah. How many cameras do you have? So we went live with a camera registry, which means we don't have access to those cameras. We can email, we have their contact information and can ask for footage and they can just send it right through this email drop through Fusis. So for there, we have about almost 500 cameras registered, which means we can contact those individuals for video and then integrated, which basically means we can actually like watch live feed and go back at least three days. We have Mm -hmm. like 105. Okay. What's the best thing you've seen on the cameras so far? Oh man, we have it down like Howard Park. So this isn't like crime related or anything, but we have it in Howard Park. And we have an ice skating rink and like a restaurant there. And so you've seen some pretty bad wipeouts on the ice. There you go. See, yeah, that can be uh, (laughs) all played and together and, you know, create your own comic relief there. uh, Yeah. uh, Best false. Yeah. Send it to America's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah. Well, yeah. You're showing your age there by saying that, right? (laughs) I guess that show's still on. But yeah, that's a, what's that? like, I got, that show's got to be about 30 plus years old now. So, but. No way. I'm 27. So it's not that old. I saw it when I was younger. It is, I think it was 89.90 when that show came out. Maybe I saw reruns or something. Yeah, you probably, <laughs> but it's been on, I think it's been on that long, right? It was, it was on for forever. And then I realized about, it was like five or seven years ago that I realized that it was still on. I was like, this show is still on? <laughs> I was like, I had no idea that it was still on. I figured it would have got canceled a long time ago, but anyway. 
Maybe, um, well, then maybe we should put them on TikTok. That was more this, this generation's speed. Yeah, that's that's true. Although TikTok's going to get all canceled, right? Everybody's coming down on TikTok and booting it off of platforms and everything else. So I, I don't mm-hmm. know how long TikTok's going to even be around. But all right, I'm thinking back to a Cincinnati Police Department when they got the real-time crime center put together and got initially got all the the cameras put up we had to report to the chief and the best thing that we could come up with we had the suspect and we were able to follow the suspect from the time that we got the call to the point of the arrest and he he went through and walked through various streets and we were able to follow him from beginning to end the the problem was is all he, he was wanted for was loitering (laughs) so so it was like yeah here's our million dollar system that we just helped solve a loitering case so (laughs) but it could be used for any other thing you know you don't have to specify what type of crime it was it's true it's true but it made it funny and interesting the fact that it was a loitering case that that, that's the best thing we could come up with at the time so Yeah, you're right. Someday, unfortunately, most likely will be a more serious event that you'll have to be using all those cameras and tracking down and following folks and and using the center to its fullest. So then what's next for the center? So we actually have a new analyst starting. We had someone leave. So we have a new one starting. So we're starting the training process on that person here shortly. But definitely getting them more immersed. So they're kind of younger new analysts who don't have as much training in the field. So obviously we show training on how we do things here. Like I said, it takes about close to a month. But definitely get them going to other trainings, whether it's conferences for analysts or just trainings that our city provides in terms of different like Excel and Microsoft PowerPoint, stuff like that, just to better their skills. And Mm -hmm. like I said, I hope in a couple months – when we revisit and hopefully we expand the center for maybe not 24 seven, but maybe like 20 hours in a day, something like that. So hopefully we have more coverage, more analysts and hopefully more cameras. Yeah. You'll be the 20 hour crime center. <laughs> yeah. It's closer <laughs> than what we're at now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I have to come up with a better name than that though. All right. So Let's move on then. As I mentioned in your intro, you are currently the treasurer of the Midwest Gang Investigations Association, MGIA. So how did you get mixed up with those folks? Oh, like I said, my Lieutenant Kyle Dombrowski, he's actually the vice president vice president of the Indiana chapter and they had an opening as a treasurer and he came to me and asked if I would be interested and I said sure but like how much extra work really does that entail and he's like oh it's not much (laughs) so then I was like okay I'll take you up on it you know why not it'd be definitely interesting to be you know involved in the different trainings and the networking functions that MGI provides so I took him up on the offer and then I became the treasurer and I'm kind of new as a treasurer I've only been almost probably for a year now I started last March so still kind of new to it I feel that the treasurer has the most work to do and maybe work needs to be more closely defined but it seems to me that in terms of all the other positions that an association normally has, whether it's a secretary, 
a vice president, a president, the transition from one person to the other taking that role is, it seems to be more fluid. But that treasure spot, like there has to be a definitely a handover when you go from one treasurer to another. And it does seem like there's definitely some check marks that absolutely have to be done legally for an association for a treasurer to do. I mean, and I don't know if you feel that way, but that to me, to me, the, the treasurer has the most specific role, I feel, in any association. Yes, I got to keep the books. But luckily, the president, Chris Salas, he is great. He is actually like, so MGI is made up of 12 states. So each state has their own board. And then we have a national board. And Chris, our president, is the treasurer for the national board. So he's like a stellar treasurer. So that's really <laughs> helpful to have him. So if I have questions or whatnot, and he knows QuickBooks really well. So I've never used QuickBooks until this position. So I've been utilizing QuickBooks and just you know, trying to gain as much knowledge from Chris as possible. You know, I finally figured out, you know, you got to balance it every month and stuff like that. But we have a conference coming up. And so that's a whole lot of stuff because we have people registering and, you know, you got to keep track of if they're, they got to have a membership fee in the registration as well as the registration fee. And so it's definitely a lot of work. Well, and we'll get to the conference here in a second. The association so it's midwest so what what is your jurisdiction all right so there's 12 states part of the midwest the mgia and it's both the dakota so north and south you have kentucky illinois indiana iowa michigan minnesota missouri nebraska ohio and wisconsin okay and then obviously if if an analyst or someone listening isn't part of a gang investigators association. I mean, what should they expect as an analyst? What does an analyst get out of the association? Yep. So there is, it's only a $25 membership fee and you can find a bunch of information on MGIA.org. That's the website for all states. And so you can see upcoming training. So just like any other organization, trainings are usually discounted or free because of your membership fee. Also with the membership fee, you get to have contacts than whoever else is also within the association. So whether that is within your state or across the Midwest, all the 12 states I listed, you will then have contacts at all those agencies who at least are a part of the association. So it definitely helps with the networking. So if someone out of Illinois might be causing issues in our state, then we can contact someone through the MGIA association from Illinois, and maybe they have information or then could direct me to someone else that might be able to help. Okay, good. And then you mentioned the conference, which is coming up. We are going to do a deep dive on this conference coming up. It should be out this week. And you, as you mentioned, Lieutenant Kyle Dombrowski, and you are going to talk about, do a deep dive in terms of all the different agenda and every all the different events for the the conference but i guess for here now let's just give a general overview of what what the plan what the goal is of this conference yeah so the conference is may 8th to may 11th this year which is in south bend at the double tree hotel downtown and basically 
each day there's a various range of topics you might experience. It could be gangs 101, it could be gang task force, gang prosecution, open source, social media, something for analysts to look forward to. There is one day where there's a four hour time block where there's an an analyst and a gang supervisor from Los Angeles coming to do a talk in terms of what the role of a crime analyst is in terms of gang investigations and a gang task force. So I'm very excited for that. But this big conference, I'm civilian, so you can be sworn or civilian law enforcement personnel to come here to the conference. We have, whether it's sworn for, it could be federal, it could be state, it could be local, it could be probation and parole, it could be, you know, it could be you work at a prison or a jail, it could also be for prosecutors as well as crime analysts. So a wide variety of law enforcement personnel are welcome and encouraged to come to the National Gang Conference, which is this May. All right. And I see you're also partnering with McLaughlin, which is the the, the local risk center. Yes. So they're going to provide some info on what they can provide to assist in investigations. So a lot of agencies don't necessarily know the free resources that based on where your state's located that you actually have access to use. So if you don't have it at your agency, a lot of other Agencies are out there at McLaughlin, or we have Indiana Fusion Center. There's a lot of different stuff that you can actually go to that are free for your agency to use and that can help with your investigation. So we will be partnering with them, and I believe they'll have a vendor table as well as they'll be even, I believe, speaking at the conference. Yeah, it's always important for an analyst, whether you're a new analyst or a seasoned analyst, to know what you have access to. And whether it's, especially if it's free and you have access to it, to know when to use those tools, even if you don't use them on a day-to-day basis, but to understand your local risk office and what they provide, because you'll need to know when you need to contact them. And so you got that coming up in May and... And is this your first conference? I went to last May's conference. It was in Iowa last year. Mm-hmm. So that was like I was on the board for like a couple, like two months. And then I went to the Iowa one. But this is my first time hosting a major national gang conference and going to at least in South Bend because it we did in South Bend. It was held in 2018, but I was relatively new to the department and did not go to that original training. Okay, so what are you looking forward to this year? The networking is very, like, a big deal for the gang conference. So after every said day is gone, you have all your classes, you get you do all this training, and then we do, like, MGIA puts on, like, a networking event so you can come and hang out. There's snacks, you know, there's usually some alcoholic beverages offered, and you get to network and really develop those relationships a bit more than just sitting next to someone in like a seven to eight hour lecture opposed to that, you know, you can at least get to know each other on a deeper level or understand people better than just being in the structured classroom environment. Well, good. So, and as mentioned, we're going to do a deep dive on the events. So we'll definitely put a link to that when it, it, to this episode, when that's going to be available. All right, Brian, let's get into some advice for our listeners. So, you know, you talked about starting out, starting about new analysts, talked about hiring, you know, what advice would you have for our listeners? If you're trying to get into the field, I would look at multiple different job descriptions to 
see like what type of skills you might need. So you not you don't always have to be in the law enforcement field to get those skills. So whether it's GIS, maybe take a GIS class in college or find one that might be offering a class or go find training on Microsoft Excel or PowerPoint, you know, to develop your technical skills. So just because you haven't had an internship necessarily in the crime analyst field, just being able to utilize the different skills and tools and then being able to apply them in the, the crime analyst field is definitely key. Obviously, finding internships or like a shadow experience is important. When I was trying to find a position, it was really hard, like you said earlier, to find internships and stuff. And so lately here, we've had a bunch of high schoolers and middle schoolers talking about what they want to do with their future. And they'll contact the police department and then they'll get my number and then I'm always happy to have a phone call conversation to explain what does the day-to-day -day look like? What exactly do we do? Because, I mean, you can read stuff, but you never know exactly what goes on at a police department or the state level or even the federal level. And then I would say the last thing would be be curious. So definitely always go above and beyond. You always want to keep diving and there's a limit to diving, I'd say, but always being curious to find more info, finding more tools to use, just knowing how things work and operate, I think is a very important advice to go forward in the field. Another question I like to ask is what I call a return on investment. So this is a topic where an analyst can study it now and it'll be beneficial for like maybe five years from now. This whole field's evolving a lot. Technology is like huge. So social media, I think, is like one of the big, would be one of the big things. So yeah, things, like you said, TikTok might be going away, but definitely the main ones, like in terms of what I deal with, I deal with a lot of gang violence. So they're communicating through Facebook opposed to cell phones a lot. So really understanding the social media and what the changes are and like what you can get from a search warrant and what can you get like just looking at their account how can you track someone down so at south bend we do a lot of trap and trace warrants where you track down individuals trying if they have a warrant or whatnot we use their social media accounts in order to locate them and so i think social media is like one of the biggest components in at least the crime analyst field that i experience yeah, another thing I just thought of too is I I don't feel that in the analyst profession that there's that much math, right? I think if you you think about it and a lot of what an analyst does from day to day, even when you're getting down to the crime analysis tasks where you're producing stats and producing counts and frequencies and maybe some averages, I mean that's about it. There's not a lot of math, I think, in some ways because of the technology, because of some of the vendors and tools. Analysts are pushing buttons, running software, and may not really even know the math that goes behind all the calculations in the computer program. Given the fact that you've got the, the bachelor's in mathematics, how do you feel about the absence of math in the profession? Yeah, you're definitely right. I'm not doing derivatives or anything like that or doing limits, but that's stuff I didn't really like with the whole math. You know, it's like not something that's like you're going to use in the daily, but definitely 
at least understanding. I think my mathematics comes into a role in terms of how I think. So the analytical part, as well as understanding. So like we don't really have cool technology for analysts to use in terms of like the data analyzation. We use Excel. So yes, you can do like different formulas and stuff, but you kind of have to understand what your numbers should look like because I mean, any numbers can have a different story to tell. So you have to make sure your math is correct, but it's definitely very, very minimal. I like knowing how things work. So knowing at least the formula or why things are doing it or what they're doing is important to me. But I mean, it's now easy where you, yeah, you click a button or you type in a formula and then you get whatever you need to. You don't necessarily have to know the math behind things, which I think is beneficial for the field because you don't want people to have to go take math in order to be a crime analyst, right? It's not needed. You don't need to know how to do derivatives and differential equations and all that stuff. All right. So now it's hot take time. So this is, I don't have a name for this segment yet. I was thinking about unpop for unpopular opinion, but I don't know how that rolls off the tongue, unpop. But do you have either a hot take or unpopular opinion with law enforcement analysis? Yes, I do. From my experience, a lot of law enforcement personnel, like sworn side of things, don't necessarily know what analysts do, which is fine. But they also, I think just because they don't understand or how utilized we are, they have a certain opinion of civilian analysts. So I would say when I started, it was definitely a very different dynamic. Me being a young female civilian analyst, I think rubbed people the wrong way. And so it was definitely, it took longer, I think, to prove myself. So, I mean, like I said, they don't necessarily know what we do. So until they work with an analyst and see what we can produce to them, their mind usually changes. But there's a lot of comments and you hear a bunch of stuff like, what do they do for us? Why are they telling us to go there? We already know that information. So I think getting into the field, you definitely have the stigma between the law enforcement sworn side and the civilian side. And hopefully that goes away, but I think there's still some type of wedge between them. Like I have great relationships with the detectives and the unit I work with, but in terms of all the patrol individuals, I think some of them definitely don't agree with what we do because it could be between potentially because we're making them go do work that they don't necessarily want to do or they don't want to be told what to do because they already know what to do because they've been on the streets for so long. So I think there is that little little stigma between civilians and sworn. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's a rite of passage when <laughs> you are an analyst and you win over that either officer or detective that may have given you a hard time in the beginning. It does seem quite satisfying when you when they realize how you can help them. All right, so then let's finish up with personal interest then. You played soccer. When did you start playing soccer? Very young. So I played, you know, when you're like barely can stand, everyone just follows the ball around. I think every kid at one point maybe started soccer because it's like the easiest thing to do. So I started when I was really young, and then I played throughout school all the way into high school, and then college. I was fortunate enough to be offered a scholarship, so I played college soccer for four years. And then I graduated, and I thought I would, you know, retire, hang up the cleats, but I definitely just can't get rid of soccer. I definitely love it too much. So I've been playing a couple days a week in like an adult women's league or an adult co-ed league. Yeah. So how has it been playing now in this rec league? 
as opposed to when you're playing in high school and whatnot. My body's older, so <laughs> definitely sore and injured occasionally. Some people, like, it's a wide range, so there could be some younger people who are, like, you know, playing because they're mm. in college or just out of college, so their level of fitness is a bit different. Yeah. Some people take it a little too serious. Like, mm -hmm. I'm here to, you know, play soccer, enjoy. I'm competitive, but, like, I want to walk in to work the next day <laughs> where some people are out for blood. And yeah. 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 But no, I got to imagine it's pretty good exercise and the, even the mental competition is probably good for you. Yeah, it's definitely a whole different beast than it is in the crime analyst field. Yeah. Now, do you in, do you enjoy watching soccer? Yes, I definitely watched the World Cup that was recently on and I'm a huge women's national soccer team fan as well. Because I, I do, I, I'm not a soccer fan, and but I'm always fascinated with how excited folks are who are fans of soccer, right? And it, I will just sit back at parties and I'll be in with a group of people that will be just talking about the English Premier League. And they'll obviously be rooting for different teams and they'll just be trash talking and excitement and all this other stuff. So I'm, I, I get excited just watching the fans get excited about this particular topic, even though I'm totally foreign to the whole soccer thing. Yeah, I think it's cool because like, not really in America so much, but in every other country, soccer is like American football for them. It's like the sport to watch and be a part of. And you live and die by your soccer team. Like people will be depressed, you know, if they lose and if they don't make the playoffs and all that stuff. And I think the Premier League and all that stuff is really cool because if regulation, uh, like if you lose or if you're the bottom of your actual at the end of the season, you go down to another level. So yeah. I think that's cooler that you don't see here in America like if you, like sometimes it's like we want our team to suck right because we get a higher draft pick or yeah. all that stuff in England and all these other leagues you can't do that because you get regulated down so yeah. I do have a Premier League I'm a big Man City fan so uh, okay. I, I, I do like them as well that's my English Premier League team yeah, no, I do. I, sometimes I do wish in American sports we had regulated the the to get dropped down. I was like, you know what, you you suck so bad, you deserve to go down another league. Yeah. So yeah, but and I was in I was in Belize the one year where the World Cup was going on, and and we were in Belize like inner Belize, not tourist trap Belize. We were in a little village and. Man, it the little village was hopping, a lot of people on the streets, and then then the game started like a half hour later and then totally cleared out. Like there was not, I mean, you could have probably burglarized every place in there because mm -hmm. everybody was in a bar watching <laughs> watching the game <laughs> and in complete excitement of the police team playing. So it was again, it was it was exciting to me to watch that to watch them watch that, watch the game, because uh, yeah. to me, I don't have a horse in the race, but to me, <laughs> to see them so excited was was a, a treat in itself. Yeah, it's definitely a cool culture. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World, and this is where I give the guests the last word. Brian, you can pr promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? 
So I kind of live by a quote and it's kind of more for an athlete, but I think it definitely can be applied to the professional world. So it's, you won't always be the strongest or fastest, but you can be the toughest. So obviously in sports that you can kind of get the connotation, but in terms of professionally, someone might be better at some type of skill or they might have more tool sets or they might know more than you in whatever field yet. But if you can outwork them or if you're just as hardworking then you'll get there and you can outdo whatever that person can do very good why well, leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later <laughs> um, <laughs> but i do appreciate you being on the show brian thank you so much and you be safe thank you thanks for having me Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.